Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I have also set up a Cash App profile for the show, and one-time contributions can be sent to the show's cash tag, which is dollar sign Mr. Jeffersonian, and all of this information will be listed in the show notes page. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And speaking of supporting listeners, I want to give a major shout out to Crystal Methodist and Tony Bolin for becoming the show's newest contributors. Thank you so much, Crystal and Tony, and y'all are both the real MVPs. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode, which is going to be the Credit Mobilier of America. And this is actually going to be the first in a trilogy of episodes, and this time for the trilogy, we're going to focus on the scandalous history of railroads in the United States. And along the way, I'm also going to make a case against the siren song of modern-day high-speed passenger rail. Now, before we start, I want to make it clear right now. I like trains. I am a train person. I love the concept of passenger rail, and I guess on a conceptual level, it does make a lot of sense to me. Uh, And I have had the pleasure of riding it in multiple countries, mostly South Korea and Italy. And the train Italo that we took in Italy was unbelievably awesome. It had air conditioning, Wi-Fi, guaranteed seating, and it only took about maybe about an hour to get from Rome to Naples. That same trip by car took over three hours. But that being said, real-world examples have clearly demonstrated that in the United States and a couple of other countries, it seems that high-speed rail has a terrible track record no pun intended, of absconding with millions of taxpayer dollars without ever laying a single mile of track. And in the words of John Dickinson, experience must be our only guide for reason may misguide us. So throughout this trilogy, we're going to go ahead and dig in deep on the financial aspect and discuss the fraud, waste, and abuse that seems inevitable when building this type of mega project. And our journey starts in the years of 1862 to 1873. So in 1862, the Pacific Railroad Act chartered two railroad companies to begin construction on a rail line that would connect the U.S. East Coast to the U.S. West Coast. The Central Pacific Railroad Company would build from the West, and they were solely contracted and brought into existence to build this portion of the transcontinental. And the Union Pacific Railroad Company would build from the East. Promoting air quotes competition, The government wanted the two lines to race against each other towards some undefined midpoint along the route, all while prioritizing the speed of the work over the safety and quality of the work. This legislation was passed in a Congress under control of the radical Republicans with no meaningful opposition since the southern states had seceded, and this plan had the full endorsement of Abraham Lincoln, who had been a well-known railroad attorney prior to being elected president. The government's financial squandering and corruption in this endeavor was epic. The boon to the two companies would be 6,400 and later doubled to 12,800 acres of land per mile and $48,000 worth of government bonds for every mile of track they laid. Union Pacific laid 1,086 miles of track, 
collecting a bounty of over $94 million. And just for context, in today's money, that is roughly $1.87 billion. And a land grant that exceeded 10 million acres. While the money was a huge boondoggle, the real scandal here was the land grant. And just one example of the abuse of this land grant was that early on, Thomas Durant would order his engineers to lay track in large oxbows to artificially extend the amount of track he was laying. In other words, so he could get more land and also more cash. The land along the route was also rich with coal, and the Union Pacific would mine this to run its trains all the way up to the 1950s, and that's, at, that's the point where diesel engines started to become more, uh, more so the norm. Now, during the course of construction, the Union Pacific could also sell this land, and the Central Pacific too, could also sell the land along the track to speculators and town developers at major markups. And the Central Pacific, again, enjoyed the same types of kickbacks, but considering their route was much more difficult as they had to make it over through and around the Sierra Nevada mountain range, they only laid 689 miles of track in this race. So we can see right off the bat, money was being thrown around like crazy. Now, some of the key figures in this drama, uh, we have Thomas Durant. He was vice president of the Union Pacific. And originally, he was actually a doctor who graduated with honors from Albany Medical College in 1840. He left medicine after a brief tenure in the trade and became a director of a grain exporting company that his uncle owned. During his time as a grain exporter, Durant became convinced of the country's need for greatly improved inland transportation. And specifically, he saw the potential of railroads. He got his start in the railroad industry with the M&M or Mississippi and Missouri Railroad, and here he developed a reputation as an absolutely ruthless businessman who was willing to squeeze everything he could get out of friend and foe alike. The next major figure in this drama is going to be Oakes Ames. He was a representative from the state of Massachusetts. And Ames made a fortune, or, or made his first fortune, selling shovels to gold miners participating in the California gold rush. Uh, so that was actually a family business, as I believe his dad started it. And then he and his brother Oliver took it over. And then during the War for Southern Independence, he made another huge fortune by contracting with the Union Army to supply sabers, shovels, and other tools. And in my opinion, this already shows some dubious nature of Ames's character because he was elected to Congress in 1863. So there could be a perception that he wanted to prolong the war in order to prolong his immense wartime profiteering. But take that at, you know, at face value or take that with a grain of salt. Now, Ames was handpicked by Abraham Lincoln, uh, obviously prior to Lincoln's assassination, to take over the Union Pacific line of the railroad. And once Ames officially took over in 1867, he used his influence to secure the rail line construction contracts to his family business. So again, getting some more of that sweet government contracting work. And eventually he would transfer these contracts into the name of Credit Mobilier and essentially carry on the same scam as his predecessor. Though I have my own interpretation of Oakes Ames based on his contracting work during the War for Southern Independence, I'm going to read to you a description of the man from a book titled The Credit Mobilier of America, which was written by J. Boyd Crawford in 1880. And Crawford writes, quote, It was thus, while the fate of the Union Pacific Railroad was trembling in the balance, that in September 1865, after the most earnest solicitation and appeals to his patriotism, Mr. Oakes Ames of Massachusetts, 
a member of Congress, was persuaded to embark in the enterprise. Mr. Ames was a man of very large means, cough, wartime profits, cough, cough, of undoubted integrity and possessed of the most wonderful energy, end quote. I'll let the audience be the judge as to whether they think Ames was corrupt long before his involvement with the Union Pacific or if the temptation of such a vast mega project was simply the downfall of a once honorable man. And the last key figure that we're going to look at for this episode is George Francis Train, uh, also a founding member of the Union Pacific and one of the masterminds behind the formation of the Credit Mobilier Company of America. And in my study of him, he seemed to be sort of a snake oil salesman for railroads. Uh, he was even able to convince the Queen of Spain to provide financial backing for a railroad project in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. This railroad would eventually become the Atlantic and Great Western Railroad, and it went bankrupt in shame in 1880. Now, Train went insane late in life and spent his final days on a park bench in New York City's Madison Square Park. And he refused to speak to anyone but children and animals. So he had kind of a sad end. I, I, honestly, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I, to me, the maladies of the mind are, are the scariest. But what was the Credit Mobilier Company of America? So the company lasted from 1864 to 1867. And it was a fraudulent finance and construction company that was used by board members of the Union Pacific to drastically inflate the construction cost of the railroad. Important to note here is that the Midwest at that time, and more so like even the Rocky Mountain region, so like the far west, at that time was almost completely devoid of towns or cities. So there was literally no pre-existing demand for this railroad. So no, no demand whatsoever for the transcontinental in terms of actual usability. Durant and Train recognized that they could never make any money on passenger or freight revenues because of this. So they devised the credit mobilier as a way to profiteer in the construction phase of this railroad versus the actual operational phase. And so what they would do is um, basically they were the board members on both the Union Pacific and on the credit mobilier. And they did this through some sort of finagling of stock purchases. Uh, I wasn't really able to discern exactly what they did, but they were able to hide their tracks because if, if it had been common knowledge that they were primary stakeholders in both of these companies, this never would have happened. But they were somehow able to hide their tracks. And so what they would do is on the credit mobilier side, they would create these fake invoices for the construction work that was done. And, and they would drastically, drastically inflate the cost. And then in their position as executive officers for the Union Pacific, they would just rubber stamp it and say, okay, looks great. And then they would, they would pocket the difference, essentially. Now, with all these ill-gotten gains, the pair would bribe politicians, uh, which included Oaks Ames, and even such high-profile high people as future president James A. Garfield. And they did this in order to secure favorable legislation, regulation, and even more government loans and contracts. And just to give you an idea of the extent of this swindling, the actual cost to build the Union Pacific portion of the line was only $50 million. But Credit Mobilier would bill the government more than $94 million. And that extra $44 million went straight into the pockets of the Union Pacific board members. The rail workers, by comparison, so the average working man, labored for an average of about $2 per day. 
And so, again, we're going to break down some of the basics of this scheme. So the Union Pacific, um, they own the train, not necessarily. I mean, they would own the track, but they, they were not the actual construction company. So what they would do is they would contract with Credit Mobilier on the construction end. And the Credit Mobilier, again, they would drastically inflate the cost and create these fake invoices. And the UP, uh, because they were basically controlled by the same people, would just rubber stamp it and say, looks great. Um, go ahead, bill it, and then we'll send this up to the government and, and get our kickback here. And these profits were split between Durant and other Union Pacific directors and stockholders. Since the company officers were the same for both the Union Pacific and Credit Mobilier, they did all of the reviewing and approving for major construction contracts. And again, they would constantly enable Credit Mobilier to inflate even further, it, basically as, as much as they thought they could get away with it. Now, another interesting aspect of this fraudulent company is that it was one of the first high-profile companies to take advantage of the newly created limited liability laws of the United States. And prior to the formation of these laws, investors were on the hook for a company's finances if the company ran into trouble. Under limited liability, however, investors would only be responsible for the money they put into the company. And this is important because Union Pacific had a horrendous time trying to attract investors under the previous model because people didn't think it could be built. Rightfully so. The terrain was extremely rugged. They were going to have to run across deserts. Eventually, they would also start running into mountains. And there were going to be hostile uh, Native American tribes along the way. So private investors just didn't think this was going to be doable. But with the in introduction of limited liability, uh, investors were, or, well, a small group of investors, not a large one, but a small group of investors were talked into providing a, a lot of capital for this. Now, prior to the conclusion of the War for Southern Independence, the Union Pacific Railroad was running with basically no oversight. But once that war ended, the general government turned its attention to the malfeasance going on with the UP. At the cease of hostilities... Union Pacific had only laid approximately 40 miles of track in a two-and-a-half-year span. Abraham Lincoln, as mentioned earlier, handpicked Oaks Ames to investigate. This would lead to Ames suing Durant and ousting him from the Credit Mobilier. At this point, Ames took control of the company and transferred his family contracts to the company and carried on essentially the same corruption. And so... That that's important because again, Oaks Ames made his first fortune uh, selling shovels and whatnot to California gold rushers, and so essentially he takes over from Durant, and then he's like, "Oh, well, let me uh, since I'm in control of this, let me just go ahead and sign these contracts over to my family business," and uh, you know just couldn't get off the federal teeth there. Now Ames, because of his position as a congressman, was able to take it even further. In order to, to, to secure votes and support for pet projects and legislation favorable to the Union Pacific, Ames would sell or transfer to his fellow Congress members shares of the Union Pacific at extremely discounted rates, almost to the point that it was called a gift. And worse still, because these people were in the government, they would use their authority to appropriate extra funding to Credit Mobilier in order to falsify the company's books to make them look more profitable so they could sell their shares on the open market at inflated prices. So the, these companies, they kind of worked hand in hand, um, but essentially certain members of Congress, again, would appropriate that extra funding and kind of help them cook the books. And then they would just turn around and sell their discounted shares of the, of the Union Pacific on the open market 
at the full face value. And they, they, some of them made enormous profits doing this. And with Ames in charge, he was able to keep his version of this scam going for roughly two years. And then trouble reared its head in this corrupted paradise. So Ames had a spat with one of his cronies named Henry Simpson McComb. McComb demanded 375 shares of Union Pacific be transferred to him. And Ames, along with the rest of the board of directors and even Thomas Durant, even though he wasn't officially involved anymore, refused to acquiesce to this demand. In retaliation, McComb leaked damning letters to a newspaper called the New York Sun. And and these letters, basically Ames just spells it out like, hey, I'm allocating this many shares to this uh, representative in New York. I'm allocating this many to somebody in Pennsylvania. We're going to have some spread out over here to Massachusetts. So I think we're getting them in an area where they can do the most good for us. So, so I mean, Ames is just coming right out and saying, yes, we're, we're using this as a tool or, or a method to bribe a congressman to get beneficial treatment. Now, the New York Sun was a paper that was highly critical of the Ulysses S. Grant administration because of the despicable levels of corruption that had occurred under it. And they broke the story on September 4th, 1872, uh, right as they were starting to enter the the start of the election season. I'm going to pause here real quick. For anybody who does not know just how corrupt the radical Republicans were, there is a book by Philip Lee. uh, It's called U.S. Grant's Failed Presidency. And he goes to tremendous length at uncovering all the scandals that happened under Grant and the Radical Republicans. So great book to check out there if you've never read it. Now, in light of the revelations made by the New York Sun and Henry Simpson McComb, there was a congressional investigation and Ames was formally censured and he would leave his congressional seat in disgrace, wisely choosing not to seek reelection at the time of or excuse me, at the end of his term. And once his term expired, he went back home to Massachusetts, where he would die shortly after. Uh, He actually passed away on May 8th of 1873. So he left in uh, towards the end of 1872, first part of 1873, died just a couple months later. And once the congressional investigation got going, eventually nine other members from both the House and the Senate were investigated. And before the government decided that it could never let anyone lose money anywhere, believe it or not, the free-ish economy of the 19th century did provide some cosmic justice to these participants. Because of the speculative nature of the activity engaged, nearly all of the beneficiaries of this boondoggle, including Thomas Durant, were financially ruined in the Panic of 1873. And so nowadays they they wouldn't have been allowed to absorb their losses because Congress would have just bailed them out, and, and that's unfortunate. But back in the day before we had a government that decided that was the role it should occupy, uh, people were actually allowed to take on the consequences of their choices, and uh, rightfully so here. Again, just about all these guys ended up at some point going severely broke because of financial panics, which was a good thing in my opinion. They Those gains were ill-gotten. And so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here for today. Now, I wanted to make y'all think this time, and, and I don't know, I would like some feedback on this if y'all like it, um, but I'm going to leave you guys with some questions here. So one... Was Oaks Ames an honest man who was corrupted by a mega project and the temptation of government money? Two, should the general government have been involved in the financing of the Transcontinental Railroad at all? And three, without outright government ownership of the rails and construction, how could the fraud here have been prevented?
And that does it for today. And I look forward to talking to y'all next time when we examine some modern train boondoggles in the United States and abroad. And please remember, if you find value in the podcast to consider contributing to the show, you can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information also included in the show notes page. And thank you again to Crystal Methodist and Tony Boland for becoming the show's newest supporters. And also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private group so we can have more sane and rational discussion around historical, or excuse me, around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time. <laughs>